okay, who followed the rescue of the Chilean miners during the week. Pretty amazing rescue, 33 men trapped over half a kilometre below the surface for over two months, finally restored to their families. If you did keep up with it, you weren't alone. It's estimated that over a billion people followed the rescue, making it one of the most watched television broadcasts in history. It really was almost as if the whole world was watching when that first miner stepped out of that little rescue chute. The miracle of San Jose, some of the papers called it. And I don't know whether you realised it or not, but that psalm that we just heard read, it actually points us forward to an even more amazing rescue, uh, an even greater miracle, which is perhaps something that's not quite self-evident when you first read it. I mean, in its original setting, Psalm 8, it's all about King David singing to God about what completely amazes him about God. And that's terrific in itself. But remember... In this series that we started last week, we're actually counting down the Old Testament Psalms that are most quoted in the New Testament. And what we find is that in the hands of the New Testament, this psalm takes on a whole new layer. Where it's not just a psalm of praise, it also becomes a song that alerts us of a rescue mission of cosmic proportions. And it's actually a rescue mission that you and I are caught up in. Let's see how. But firstly, considering the context of this psalm. Because remember from last week, context matters. There is a deliberate pattern. There is a deliberate order to the psalms. And so this morning, it's worth noting that this psalm, Psalm 8, occurs within what is called Book 1 of the psalms. So you go back a couple of pages to the very start of psalms. Uh, Back to the very beginning, and just before the heading for Psalm 1, you should be able to see a subtitle that says Book 1. And if you've got an NIV, which most of us have, it'll even tell you in italics that Book 1 goes from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. Now, Psalms has five of these sorts of books in them. And uh, as this series goes on, we'll get it. We'll jump into most of those five books. The thing to note, though, is that in each of the five books that compose the Psalms, they each have their own distinctive mood. They have their own characteristic themes. And so we're in book one this morning. And what you discover in book one, Psalms 1 through to 41, virtually every one of them is written by King David. And they are full of songs all about struggle. So there you are, You're here, here you are in the beginning. Look down at Psalm 3. Psalm 3. Look at how it starts. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Look at how Psalm 4 starts. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help. Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. Psalm 7. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. 
There's a lot of soul-searching and sorrow and distress in Book 1 of the Psalms. But not all the Psalms in Book 1 are like it. In amongst the Psalms of lament, there's also a scattering of Psalms of praise, like the one we just heard, like Psalm 8. As you heard it read earlier, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of difficulty or sadness in, in it, is there? Those things are there, but they're there in the background. Verse 2, for example, mentions enemies and foes. And so there's this sort of background noise of people who are making trouble for David and rejecting God. But the dominant feel of the psalm that we just heard, it's one of praise and one of thanksgiving. That's its context. Psalm 8 is a song nestled in between all these other songs of struggle. But it itself is a song of praise. Just hold that thought for a moment. But what is it praising God about? Well, here we need to turn to the content of the psalm, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, did you notice when it was read earlier that that exact same thought finishes the psalm? Verse 1, verse 9, did you notice that? They are identical. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Because the way the psalm operates is that having said it the first time up in verse 1, the psalm then takes us on a bit of a tour to take in a couple of aspects about God so that by the time we return to the same thought at the end of it, when we pile off the tour bus, we are left thinking the same thought but appreciating the idea in a whole new way. Man, oh man, how majestic is your name after what we've just seen in the psalm. Lord, oh Lord, you really do completely astound me. How so? Well, the Psalm 8 tour bus has two main highlights along the way. The first highlight starts in the second half of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, notice the phrase. It's not saying that God's glory is seen in the heavens. It's above the heavens. So this is different to, say, Psalm 19. You know, that's the one that says the heavens declare the glory of God. As true as that might be, this is a different thought here. This is the idea that there is something about God's majesty that is beyond the heavens, something about God's majesty that is beyond the normal working of the created order. There is an otherness to God's majesty. There's a genius to God that you will simply not get if you confine your thinking to the way this world ordinarily operates. Verse 2 goes on to spell out why. For from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Now the wording's a little difficult to follow there. It's basically saying that God silences his enemies through the praise of children that God actually uses the simple, the unsophisticated. God uses the apparently weak ones to silence his enemies. The wording is difficult to follow. The idea is worth getting our heads around. God uses the inexperienced and the unassuming to show off his majesty, which is quite a deal different to the world. You don't have. You only got to go back to the Commonwealth Games over the last couple of weeks to see that. Commonwealth Games, they're all about finding the strongest, the fastest, the highest, the fittest, the most accurate, because we live in a world where majesty and honour is usually given to those who are strong, 
those who are powerful and clever and capable and attractive and beautiful. That's how the world operates. But God works to show his majesty through the weak and the simple and the unsophisticated. And it's in this way that God's majesty is above the heavens. God's majesty actually operates in a whole different way. His majesty is quite unique because of the very lowly and simple ways that he chooses, that he delights in showing his majesty through. Which in itself is a nice thought. I don't want to offend you, but not many of us are going to make you know, the glossy magazines. Not many of us are going to have the big high profiles in life that you see on the news. That's okay. It's exactly people like us through whom God delights to show his majesty. Which leads us to a second and indeed the main thought of the psalm. Verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? If you have ever looked up at the night sky and honestly considered our place in this universe, it is a very daunting experience. And with what we now know of the universe compared to what was known back in David's time, these words come to us with an even greater force. Here we are sitting in one of the smallest of eight planets, revolving around a fairly inconspicuous star, one of 400 billion stars within our galaxy, which in itself is a fairly inconspicuous galaxy, one of 140 billion other galaxies, and that's just the visible universe. We are microscopic on the scale of the universe. And God is mindful of us, cares for us, knows us by name. Indeed, more than that, God has given us a special place of honour in creation. Look at verse 5. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. And the psalm here is drawing on the early chapters of Genesis and how God created mankind to be God's representative here on earth. Of all the animals, humans were created to rule the earth on God's behalf. God has placed humanity under him, but over the world. And in Psalm 8, God, David tells God that he is utterly dumbfounded by that. Lord, I am just staggered by your majesty. That such apparently insignificant people could in fact be so special to you. Friends, this is the tour that Psalm 8 is taking us on. You think God is majestic? His majesty is completely, it's in a completely different category to the way we usually think. Because unlike this world, God uses, God cares for, God honours those who are very, very easily overlooked. His majesty is amazing. 
because of the lowly ways in which he delights to show it. And so he chooses to silence his enemies through the praise of little kids. And in this enormous universe, he created us to represent him. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And friends, just in case you didn't notice it before, could you notice that in that opening and closing phrase that one of the lords is in capitals and the other isn't? Did you notice that? The one in capitals stands for Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. That's the one that God used to introduce himself to Moses at the burning bush. The second lord that's there, the one that's not in capitals, it's, it's more a title. It means master, ruler, commander. The phrase is saying, O Yahweh, our master, which is a bit like saying, O Julia, our prime minister. The very fact that you would call her Julia presumes a level of friendship, doesn't it? A level of closeness. This is the personal name of God. And for little people like us, sitting on a little planet tucked away in the corner of the universe, to be that intimate with the master and creator of the universe. That's astonishing. But that's the majesty of God for you. That he would allow such apparently insignificant people to in fact be so special to him. This is a good psalm. But let me tell you that when this psalm gets created in the New Testament, a whole new dimension gets added to it. So come with me now to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. There is another time that this psalm gets quoted in Matthew uh, by Jesus himself that I'd love to have time to look at. Uh, We don't have the time. I've put it in brackets in your bulletin. Go and have a look at it some other time, please. That quoting of the psalm helps us understand who Jesus is. But when this psalm gets quoted in Hebrews, it helps us understand what Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to pick it up slap bang in the middle of a discussion about how great Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. It is not to angels that he, that is God, has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honour and put everything under his feet. Now Hebrews has just quoted a slab of Psalm 8, hasn't it? In fact, at this point, you're a little smarter than the writer of Hebrews because you know it comes from Psalm 8. All the writer can say is that, you know, somewhere someone has testified. The significance of this, though, is that Hebrews is going to go on and wrap a whole new layer of meaning around this psalm. Verse 8. In putting everything under him, that is, in God putting everything under humanity, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him. In other words, Hebrews is pointing out the fact that despite what Psalm 8 says about mankind... At present, we don't actually see humanity in control at all. The glorious picture that Psalm 8 has painted, 
doesn't really fit with what we see when we turn on the news each night. Because when we turn on the news, what we see are us fighting with each other, disagreeing over each other about what's best, starting wars with each other, mismanaging the world that God has given us. I heard during the week the UN has estimated that because of human impact, the world is losing 200 species a day. 200 every day. The total number of vertebrate animals, that's animals with a backbone, you know, reptiles, fish, birds, mammals, the total number of vertebrates on the planet has plummeted by a third in just the last 30 years. We are mismanaging our planet at an astronomical rate. And the Bible tells us over and over again that the reason for the mess is that despite God setting us up as his rulers of the world under his authority, we have rejected that perspective. And what has happened is that we have degenerated into sin and disarray. Because on the one hand, we either elevate humanity so much that we now turn ourselves into God. We ignore the true God. We decide what's right and wrong. And then we have all these massive fights because we can't agree on who's right or wrong is the right, right or wrong. Or else, on the other hand, we don't elevate humanity enough. And we ended up just seeing each other as just another animal. And so a woman in England who mistreats a cat by dropping it in a rubbish bin gets on national news somehow. Meanwhile, the 200 human abortions dropped in rubbish bins across Australia the same day don't rate a mention. And God not only grieves, he is dishonoured. Because Psalm 8 points out the majesty of God is only truly seen when we get the balance right. The majesty of God is only truly seen when we understand that he has set up humanity as tiny as we are in this universe. He has set us up to rule his creation on his behalf. And we have made an utter mess of it. So what's the answer? Can we somehow get back to what Psalm 8 describes? Well, Hebrews goes on to now explain that that's why Jesus became human. In order to fulfill Psalm 8 in himself and then to restore us to what Psalm 8 describes. Look at verses 9 in our Hebrews passage. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, friends, there's a lot of ideas in those two verses I know. The main idea I'd like us to see for our purposes today is that whereas you and I fall short of what Psalm 8 describes, Jesus doesn't. His obedience, even to the point of suffering death, we're told, 
reflect, is reflective of the fact that he is the perfect man as described in Psalm 8. He really did live under God's authority. And therefore, verse 9, he is now crowned with glory, just like Psalm 8 describes. But what's even more wonderful is what verse 9 goes on to say, that by dying he tasted death for everyone so that many others could be brought to glory as well. In other words, Jesus achieved what Psalm 8 describes and through his death, he now shares it with those who follow him. And suddenly you see in the hands of the New Testament, Psalm 8 leaps off the page with a whole new layer of meaning. Suddenly this has not just been a song of praise, this is a song that's alerting us to a rescue mission of cosmic proportions. For sin has meant that humanity is in need of a rescue. We have degenerated to the degree that we are a pale shadow of what Psalm 8 has described. And yet from the tangled mess of humanity, Jesus has rescued us. Brought us back to the glory and the honour that God always intended for us as people. And I would love that to be a lesson that will encourage and comfort you this morning. Because remember the context of Psalm 8? It's a song of praise nestled in to songs of struggle. Put there, I suspect, in that context so as to help teach us to not lose sight of the majesty of God even when life around us is a struggle when life is difficult. Because life can get difficult, can't it? Maybe some of you here at this very moment, life is just hard. And you can feel in the midst of it quite insignificant, quite defeated. You can feel in the scheme of things you don't matter much at all. And you might be here feeling quite overlooked, quite unnoticed. Friends, Psalm 8, especially in, in, in the hands of the New Testament, is telling us that because of the majesty of God, you are hardly unnoticed. God himself came for you. God's own son, out of all the billions of planets, around all the billions of stars, in all the billions of galaxies, he stepped foot onto this one for you. And suddenly you see, for followers of Jesus, we can now claim the words of Psalm 8 in a whole new way. Psalm 8 says God is mindful of us. Through Christ, he's been mindful of you in ways far beyond what David could have imagined. Psalm 8 says God cares for us. Through Jesus Christ, he has cared for you in ways far beyond what King David could have imagined. Psalm 8 says God crowns us with glory and honour. Through Jesus Christ, he has crowned you with glory and honour far more than King David could have possibly imagined. And therefore, because of who you are in Christ, you, in fact, bring a dignity to whatever you do simply by virtue of it being you who's doing it. Whether you're here as a grandparent or a single parent, whether you're a blue-collar worker or a white-collar worker or whether you can, can't get any work at all, 
Whether you're married or single, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you don't have many friends or whether you've got more friends than you can poke a stick at, whether you, whatever you're doing, whether it's the housework or running a country or raising a family, you're hardly insignificant. God is mindful of you, cares for you, restores you to the glory and honour of Psalm 8. And so whatever reasons King David originally had to write the song, you and I who live this side of the cross, we have way more reasons. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name above all the earth. Or rather, as we can say, Abba, Father, how majestic is your name in all the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you that you are mindful of even us, care for even us, that you came even for us, so as to restore us through Jesus to the honour and the glory that you always intended humanity to have. Father, your majesty is astounding. And we are left to simply, humbly thank you. And we praise your name. Amen.